Well, I, uh, <laughs> I've been trying my best to keep people from talking to me about the article that apparently was in the Statesman this morning. I didn't want to think about it, but uh, fortunately, the guy that I paid to have his picture taken instead of me uh, doesn't look anything like me, so I'm still safe on the streets. Um, <laughs> it's never a pleasant experience, but anyway, let's get on to our, our study this morning. I have a friend who has a fairly enormous cynical streak, and uh, one time he was at a Wednesday night sharing meeting at the church that he pastors. People were sharing their favorite verses from Scripture, but unfortunately during this service not a lot of reality was coming through. People were being very superficial. So he decided he wanted to shake things up to get people thinking. So he stood up and he shared a verse from Judges 4, verse 21. He said, But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep. And she drove the tent peg through his temples and into the ground. And then he sat down. (laughs) He definitely uh, got people thinking. I have no idea what they were thinking, but they were thinking. Uh, David Roper has a, a favorite verse just to show how meaningless Scripture is when you tear it out of context. He often will quote First Chronicles uh, chapter 26, verse 18. It goes like this. At Parbar, westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. <laughs> you know, outside of context, that verse doesn't mean anything to us. My favorite uh, verse for changing meaning when you take a verse out of context is the uh, King James reading of Psalm 50, verse 9. It goes... The Lord said, I will take no bull from thy house. I thought about having a plaque made, putting it on my wall. Or uh, consider Bill Herman's verse. He uh, showed up at a recent staff function in shorts. And as we were all admiring his legs, he quoted to us from Psalm 147, verse 10. God's delight is not in the legs of a man. Well, that, that verse not only uh, gives Bill comfort as the uh, weather heats up and he heads outside in his shorts, that's the verse I want to look at more closely this morning. <laughs> this morning we're going to be talking about God's delight in us. And like I said, I want to look at Bill's verse and the verse that follows it in Psalm 147. Go ahead and turn there. For those of you who haven't been around re- recently, we've been talking about God's delights, the things that He delights in. We started with looking at His greatest, most enduring delight, God's eternal delight in His Son. Then we uh, talked about how that delight overflowed into the Father and the Son together expressing themselves and their love by creating this universe that we know and, and enjoy. God's delight in creation. Then we talked about God's delight in His name because His name communicates and represents and reveals all that He is and what He is like. And then last week we talked about God's delight in redemption, how it was actually the Father's delight to crush the Son because of the glory that it revealed and because it brought us back to the purpose for which we were originally created, to delight ourselves in God, to see Him as He is, 
and to let that overflow into praise and worship with thanksgiving. That's God's delight in redeeming us. Well, this morning we're going to finish the series by talking about God's delight in us. And when every week there, there was so much more that we could have talked about, so many different angles we could have come at, at our topic. And the same thing's true this morning. As we examine God's delight in us, we could see how that is, is merely an extension of His delight in His name. Peter tells us that we are a people for His name. So God's delight in us is just part of His delight in His name. Or we could uh, have looked at how God's delight in us is just part of His delight in creation. We are the part of creation that was given the intelligence and the awareness to be able to see God, to be able to see His hand at work, to, to appreciate that, to acknowledge that, to be impressed by that, and to respond to that through praise and worship. Or we could look at how God's delight in us is merely an extension of His delight in His Son. You see, we are in Christ Jesus. God is delighted with us because of that very fact. When God looks at us, He sees the worthiness of Christ. We are new creatures created in Christ Jesus. What's true of Christ is now true of us, and God is absolutely delighted with His Son. And so He is absolutely delighted with you if you are in Christ Jesus. That's beyond and regardless of your performance. That's merely in the fact that you are identified with His Son. You see, we bear the name of Christ. We live under the protection and authority of that name. So God's delight in us is, is part of His delight, His eternal delight in His Son. Now, any of these uh, would be a worthy study. Any of these would be an accurate discussion of God's delight in us. But the, the angle that I wanted to take this morning was to talk a little bit about how we can increase God's delight in us, how we can participate in it, how we can make choices that will, will enhance His delight in us. And I want to do that by looking at Bill's verse and springboarding off of that verse and the verse that follows it. So let me just start by reading Psalm 147, 10 and 11. It says, His delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor is His delight in the legs of a man. But the Lord delights in those that fear Him, in those who put their hope in His unfailing love. Now, the first line of, of those verses does not mean that God has anything against horses. He created them. He likes them. In Job chapter 39, God is challenging Job. He's trying to, to help Job see some of his greatness, some of his wisdom in the things that he, have, he has created. And so in that chapter, he's asking Job questions about all kinds of different animals. And in verse 19, he asks Job about a horse. And he says... Do you give the horse his might or clothe his neck with strength? Do you make him able to leap like locusts, striking terror with his snorting? He paws fiercely, rejoicing in his strength and charges into the fray, laughing at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts, aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. See, clearly God delights in the strength that He has given horses, in the courage that He has given horses. And He wants Job to exalt in the horse 
so that Job will grow in his respect for the one that created the horse. But you see, the point that he's, he is making here, his desire is that we not take our courage and our, our, our comfort, that we not trust anything other than God. See, there's nothing wrong with a horse. It's just that a horse is not what we should trust for our protection. In Psalm or Proverbs 21.31 says, A horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Psalm 33.17 A war horse is a vain hope for victory, and by its strength it cannot save. You see, a horse in those days was your, your best military weapon. Its courage, its strength, riding into the, to the battle, the hand-to-hand combat with a horse was your, your guarantee of victory. It was the strength of your horses, the number of your horses. And God is very clear. A horse is a vain hope for victory. That's why Psalm 27 says, Some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Again, the point is not that God has anything against horses. He likes them. He created them. The point is that God does not want us to put our hope, our trust, in anything instead of Him. And notice I said instead of Him. You see, God provides us with many things that are, are, are useful, helpful, sometimes even critical at times. But we're not to trust these things instead of God. The, the distinction is subtle, but it's critically important. If I have an infection, I need an antibiotic. If I don't get one, I may grow sicker and die. If I get the right one, I will probably get well. Now, where's God in all of this? Do, do I, by, by using this medicine, am I not trusting God? Do I somehow detract from His delight in me? Well, possibly, but not necessarily. You see, if I'm looking to that medicine in and of itself to save me, if I'm thinking that medicine by itself, in and of itself, is my hope, then I am thinking wrongly. I am diminishing God's glory in my life and detracting from His delight in me. But when I see that that medicine is merely one of His provisions. God created the body in such a way that it will respond to the chemicals in an antibiotic. God revealed the knowledge of that antibiotic to us. God made it accessible to me. God superintends my specific response to that specific antibiotic. See, He's involved every step of the way. If I am delivered from sickness through medicine. It is still God who has done it. He has merely chosen medicine as His means. And for me to fail to recognize that and to acknowledge that is ungrateful and foolish. You know, ask any honest doctor. He will tell you antibiotics don't always work. Medicine doesn't always work. It is merely one of the choices God can make as He chooses to deliver us, to save us. To fail to recognize and acknowledge this is as if you were dying of thirst and someone braved all kinds of hardships and difficulties to bring you a glass of water. 
And you praised and thanked that glass rather than the person who brought it to you. Again, there's nothing wrong with medicine. It's part of God's creation, and it's one of the means He may choose to help us. But we never put our trust in medicine. We trust God, and we use medicine. This this applies to every area of our life. There's nothing wrong with a good job. It's very important. It's very valuable. But we don't trust our job or our boss or our company or, or our ability to do that job or our hard work to provide for us. God provides for us. Now, typically, He uses a job, but not always. And that job may come or go, but God continues to provide for us. But you see, we diminish His glory. We detract from His delight in us. When we fail to recognize this consciously, to acknowledge this, and when we put all of our energy and all of our focus into that job as if it were our security. See, a job is a vain hope for security. A spouse is a vain hope for escape from loneliness. Children are a vain hope for significance. Wealth is a vain hope for peace. Sex is a vain hope for satisfaction or comfort. Politics is a vain hope for freedom. Again, all of these are good things. There's nothing wrong with them. But our hope is in God. Not in horses or jobs or families or senators. The writer of our Psalms tells us that God doesn't delight in the legs of a man. Again, I don't think that means God has anything against men's legs. Some men have very attractive legs, I'm sure. But what it does bring up is the issue of whom we trust. The, the legs of a man are his strength in, in, in these days. That was, those are the strongest muscles a man has. And, and his ability to fight was really dependent on his ability to stand and to run. And to, to, his strength was in his legs. In our modern idiom, we would say you don't trust in the strength of a man's back. Because that's what we talk about, a person's strength being in their back. But the point is the same. When we trust ourselves and our own strength and our own ability, again, we detract from God's glory. We rob Him of a little of His delight in us. Because His delight is in meeting our need. And when we turn to ourselves, when we look to ourselves, then He does not have the opportunity to express His power, His goodness, His wisdom in our lives. You see, our culture acknowledges that you can't trust anyone else, but tells you to trust yourself. Well, that still falls short of the glory of God. In Isaiah chapter 57, God says, I live in a high and holy place. God is way above us. He is the transcendent God of the universe. But that whole verse reads, I live in a high and holy place, but I also live with Him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. See, God is delighted with humility. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Now, humility is not self-depreciation. 
Humility does not say, oh, you know, I'm worthless. No, I have enormous value as someone created in the image of God. Humility does not say, I'm worse than everybody else. No, we're all about the same. Humility doesn't say, I can't do anything well. I've got nothing to contribute. No, God has given you abilities and talents and gifts, and you have developed skills that make you able to contribute in a a significant and a, a unique way to this body here and to society. But you see, humility does say, I am not the center of the universe. God is. All that exists does not exist for my glory. It exists for His. I am not the one who determines moral absolutes, what is right and wrong. God does. And the purpose of my life is not my own comfort, and not my own advancement. The purpose of my life is His glory. See, humility acknowledges just how far our lives are from reflecting that glory. And that's why we tremble at His Word, because His Word shows us what life should look like. His Word shows us what's worth living for. His Word shows us what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And His Word shows us that we fall short of the glory of God, that each of us has turned his own way. But James reminds us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. He is delighted to save us. We cannot save ourselves. So we can no more rely on our own strength, our own ability, than we can on anything other than God. Psalm 149.4 says, The Lord delights in His people. He beautifies the humble with salvation. See, God beautifies us by saving us. He beautifies us by expressing His goodness in us and to us. Our beauty becomes true beauty because our beauty becomes a reflection of His beauty. God delights to save us. That's His primary characteristic, Savior. But when we look to our own strength, to our own intelligence, to our own resources. We rob Him of the opportunity to demonstrate His wisdom and His goodness and His power in our lives. Now, He may go ahead and take care of us because that's the kind of person He is. But we do not experience the delight of seeing Him as He is and the delight of acknowledging that and praising Him, giving thanks to Him, worshiping Him. And in losing that opportunity, we detract from His delight in us. We'll come back to that a little later. But I want to take a a look now at verse 11. We've looked at what does not increase, what does not enhance God's delight in us. Now I want to look at what does. Verse 11. The Lord delights in those that fear Him in those who put their hope in His unfailing love. Now, to some degree, these are just the converse of what we've already talked about. So we've we've already talked about these, uh, at least to some extent. But I want to look specifically at these things, uh, fear and hope, and see what they produce in our lives and how that increases God's delight in us. 
But first of all, let me ask a question. How do we fear God and hope in Him at the same time? Usually when I'm afraid of something, my hope is that it will go away, that it will not be there anymore and stop frightening me. But let me see if I can illustrate this. <clears throat> On the very northern uh, corner of the coast of Israel, right on the border with Lebanon, is a, is a grotto, a, a series of caves that open up onto the ocean. It's called Kafar Rosh Hanikra. These are huge caves, some of them about a third the size of this room. And the bottom of the caves is always covered with ocean. But when the tide comes in, the, the waves roaring and crashing up the, the channel of the caves makes the earth shake and the sound becomes deafening. Well, on the day that I was visiting these caves, there was a small child and a handful of people that I was among. And as the earth began to shake and you could just feel the power of the ocean and the noise became deafening, this little boy began screaming in terror. And he felt the power of the ocean and he instinctively knew that anything that powerful is terrifying. He was afraid. But we were okay. We were in this little cutaway, very high on the cave wall, a little cleft protected completely from the force of the ocean. But quite honestly, even though I knew we were perfectly safe, not all of the fear was gone from me. Just the, the life-threatening part. I was still trembling, but more with awe and wonder. Just the, 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 to be in the presence of that power. I knew that I would never want to trifle with that power that I saw and that I heard and that I felt. I would never want to tangle with that. See, God, when we see Him, as he is, when we catch even a glimpse of his greatness, of his intelligence, of his power, even a glimpse of that causes fear. The, 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 the most powerful tidal wave, an erupting volcano, uh, the implosion of a star are tiny hints of his power. But God cups his hand around us and in the midst of the terror of His greatness, He tells us that He loves us and that He'll protect us. And the ground is still shaking. The sound is still deafening. The adrenaline is still flowing, but we are perfectly safe, secure in His love. So He is both our fear and our hope. In fact, it's the reality that He is our fear, that He is that powerful, that He is that intelligent, that He is that great, that forms the basis of our hope. Because He is more powerful than anything we might have to face. Well, let's look at these things, fear and hope, and see what they lead to in our lives and see how that con contributes to uh, our increasing God's delight in us. First thing the psalmist says the Lord delights in those that fear Him. Again, why does He want to scare us? Well, He doesn't. But He delights in us seeing Him as He is. Seeing His greatness, His beauty, His intelligence, His power. And being impressed with that. See, He wants us to be impressed with what we see because that will produce something in us. What will it produce? It will produce obedience. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. And now what does the Lord your God ask of you? 
but to fear Him, that is, to walk in His ways, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and observe the Lord's commandments and decrees for your own good. See, when we see God as He is, when we catch a glimpse of His power and His wisdom and His goodness and His love, and we experience the emotional impact of that, then living in such a way that shows that we trust Him becomes a clear and deeply felt priority. Now, this isn't a legalistic, I've got to obey Him or He'll smash me, or I've got to obey Him so that He'll love me. No, this is a response to seeing who He is, to acknowledging that He is that smart and that good, that beautiful, that kind, that powerful, that He is worthy of my trust, that He is good enough for me to really put my confidence in. He's powerful enough for me to really put my confidence in. You see, obedience is the outworking of trust. When we disobey Him, we are demonstrating by our lives that we don't trust Him. That He's trying to mess us up. He's not really that good. Or He's making a mistake here. He's calling it wrong in this particular instance. Or or, or, or that, sure, this may be the right thing to do, but He's going to drop the ball on this one. He's not powerful enough to pull this one off. And we're saying we trust our own wisdom, our own ability to figure it out, our own resources, our own power, our own goodness over His. See, obedience is the, is the acknowledgement that He is trustworthy. But it's also the opportunity for Him to display His wisdom and display His goodness, display His power in our lives as we obey Him and see Him solve the issues of our lives and demonstrate His own character through our lives. One way I've heard it said, is that God is happy with our obedience when our obedience is the overflow of our happiness with God. Or another way was, He delights in our obedience when our obedience is a product of our delight in Him. See, otherwise it can become attempts at our own glory to show that we are tough enough, we're strong enough to obey all the rules bringing the attention to ourselves. Or it can become a very sterile, empty, uh, religious act rather than a loving act of responding to Him, seeing Him as He is. This doesn't mean that obedience doesn't take effort, that it's easy. At times, it takes supreme effort. In the garden before His death, Jesus sweat great drops of blood. It was so hard for Him But knowing the Father's glory, knowing the Father intimately, He chose to obey the Father and therefore amplify His glory, express that glory. Jesus said, Father, glorify Yourself. And then He obeyed, even to His death. You see, true spiritual obedience is an acknowledgement that God is that good, that He's that wise, that He's that smart, And it's trusting Him. It's trusting Him to use our obedience for His own glory, even if we don't see how, and even if it involves suffering. True spiritual obedience is a response to God's glory and an opportunity 
for him to express that glory in the way that he cares for us, in the way that he loves us. Well, that leads us to the other way we contribute to God's delight in us. It says, the Lord delights in those who put their hope in his unfailing love. You see, fear of the Lord expresses itself through obedience. Hoping in his unfailing love expresses itself through prayer. In Proverbs 15, verse 8, we're told the prayer of the upright is his delight. Now, why is our prayer his delight? I get tired when people are always asking me for things. I get tired when I feel like people are always coming wanting something. Why does our prayer, our asking, delight him? Well, because our prayers highlight his grace. Our prayers are admission of our need and our confidence that he is the answer to that need. Our prayer is the, is the expression that we do indeed believe that he is good enough to care about my needs and my life. It's the expression that we do indeed believe that he is smart enough to know what to do about it, that he can figure out the solutions, that he can glorify himself in my life. Our prayer is the confession, the admission that we actually do believe that he is powerful enough to do something about it, to provide what I need, to save me no matter how impossible and hopeless it seems. You see, our prayer is an expression of the glory of God because he is all of these things. Our prayer is not only the expression, the acknowledgement of his glory, it's the avenue by which he shows us more of his glory, that we experience more of his glory. You see, God delights in our well-being. In Psalm 35, Verse 27, it says, God delights in the well-being of those that serve him. And he delights to give us good things and to do good things for us. Listen to Jeremiah 32. They will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them singleness of heart and action so they will always fear me for their own good and for the good of their children. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will never turn away from me. I will delight in doing good to them. I will plant them in this land with all of my heart. See, God delights in doing good to us. It's one of His great joys to give, to give good things to us. But James tells us we don't have because we don't ask. You see, God delights to do good things. He delights to give good things. But sometimes He restrains His great desire to give us good things out of His love for us. Waiting until we acknowledge that we even have the need. That we even ask. Because He wants us to know that it is He who is loving us to see that so that we respond in gratitude and love. Not to stroke His ego, but so that our relationship with Him will grow more intimate. That we will be sharing love back and forth. That's His desire. That's what He wants with us. And He loves us enough to restrain His hand in giving to us so that we don't take all of His good gifts, all of His generosity for granted. You see, when, when things come to us as a matter of course, we're not even looking for God's glory. We're not even 
uh, thinking about how this shows what kind of person he is, his, his wisdom, his goodness, his generosity, his ability. We don't even notice it. And we were created to see his glory, to acknowledge that, to respond to that, to express that in gratitude and praise. And when we don't notice it, we don't experience the joy, the delight of being what we were created, of doing what we were created to do. God loves us enough to want that joy for us and to restrain Himself in giving to us and doing for us. Let me put what we've been saying so far like this. God delights in us as objects of His love. He delights to express His glory by serving us. And we increase and participate in that delight by fearing Him through obedience, by hoping in Him through dependent prayer. That is how we increase God's delight. We turn to Him in obedience and we turn to Him in prayer, making our needs known, acknowledging our need, and thus freeing His hand to give to us without restraint. You know, as a father... I hate it when I have to withhold from my children. When I want to give them something good, something that that I know they will enjoy, but I know that they're taking the love that Becky and I have have for them for granted, the things that we're doing for them, the things we're giving them for granted. We have to, out of love, restrain ourselves because we know that ingratitude is a monster that will eat their souls and leave them empty and joyless and bored. So out of love... We have to restrain ourselves. And when I want to take them someplace to do something fun with them, but I can't because they've been disobedient and they're grounded, I'm usually far more disappointed than they are. But I love them enough to be disappointed. I love them enough to restrain my desire to give them good things. And if I, who am just their earthly father feel this way, how much more their God who loves them more than I do, who is far more giving and generous than I am, how much more He must feel this way. And how delighted He is when we come to Him in obedience and come to Him in prayer with with thanksgiving and free His hand to give to us without restraint, to withhold no good thing from us. Well, let me uh, close with a quote from John Piper. I started this whole series with a quote from John Piper, so it's appropriate to finish with one from him. But listen to this. God has no deficiencies that I may be required to satisfy. He is complete in himself. He is overflowing with happiness in the fellowship of the Trinity. The upshot is that God is a mountain spring not a watering trough. A mountain spring is self-replenishing. It constantly overflows and supplies others. But a watering trough needs to be filled with a pump or a bucket brigade. So if you want to glorify the worth of a watering trough, you work hard to keep it full and useful. But if you want to glorify the worth of a spring, you do it by getting down on your hands and knees and drinking to your heart's satisfaction until you have the refreshment and the strength to go down into the valley and tell the people what you found. 
You do not glorify a mountain spring by dutifully hauling water up the path from the river below and dumping it in the spring. What we see is that God is like a mountain spring, not a watering trough. And since that is the way God is, we are not surprised to learn from Scripture that the way to please God is to come to Him to get, not to give, to drink, not to water. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. See, we delight God by coming to Him, letting Him love us, letting Him satisfy our thirst. Jesus said, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without charge from the spring of the water of life. In Psalm 36, David said, How precious is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. See, ultimately, we have a God who is delighted at being God. And because of that, we can drink deeply from the river of His delights. Because of His delights, we can be filled with joy and delight. Let's pray. Lord, it is so hard for us to see how delighted you are, what a happy God you are. When we see the product of sin around us, we see the effects of sin in our own lives, we feel the destruction and the confusion and the pain times, Lord, we're tempted to see you as being crushed and weary, to view you as being saddened and joyless, rather than realizing that you are a God who overflows with joy, that it is your desire to share your joy with us. Lord, we want to participate in that. We want to be involved in that. We want to obey you and increase your delight in us. We want to come to you in prayer, acknowledging our need, acknowledging your greatness and your goodness, so that we might see your power, your wisdom, your love at work in our lives. Lord, magnify yourself in us. Fill us with the delight of seeing you, of knowing you, of experiencing your glory. And Lord, take delight in us as we glorify your name and enjoy you forever. Amen.